Let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 2 this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 2, and we'll look at, it's not really the second half, it's the second third of the chapter, from verse 12 to verse 32. We looked at verses 1 through 11 in a previous message, the first third of the chapter, and so uh, we'll do the second third, two-thirds of the chapter today. And I want to point out to you in this message, message that the kingdom doesn't come easily. Things get messy. Uh, in a perfect world, there would be no sin. And people would behave exactly the way they ought to in every setting. But we live in a fallen world, and so there, is, there are not, you know, it's the people of God. So you would think that the desire would be uh, for there to be a, a peaceful transition of power to David. And there should have been, but there was not. And I want to show you what happened here and why it happened uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 2. Would you stand with me? And we'll read the word of God together. I think I'll read down to verse 17 from verse 12 this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. These are the words of God. And Abner the son of Ner and the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul went out from Maanam to Gibeon, and Joab the son of Zeruiah and the servants of David went out and met together by the pool of Gibeon, and they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men now arise and play before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. Then there arose and went over by number twelve of Benjamin, which pertained to Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And they caught everyone his fellow by the head, and thrust his sword in his fellow's side, so they fell down together. Wherefore that place was called, good luck with this one, right? Helkath Hazurum, which is in Gibeon. And there was a very sore battle that day, and Abner was beaten, and the men of Israel before the servants of David. And there were three sons of Zeruiah there, Joab and Abishai and Asael. And Asael was as light of foot as a wild rose, and Asael pursued, I'm sorry, a wild roe. And Asael pursued after Abner, and in going, he turned not to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, your word and for giving us stories like this where we can see uh, the way that our world is. We, you lay it bare for us and uh, don't conceal it or hide it or uh, attempt in the Bible to pretend that we live in anything other than a fallen world. I pray that we would see the effects of sin, but we would also recognize your and of mercy and goodness and that we would be grateful for the way that you pursue us and subdue us and bring us into subjection to yourself what there's no better blessing that could ever happen to us than for you to conquer us and I pray that you would I ask that you would help us all that we would be hungry for your word that we would receive it gratefully and gladly and that uh, anything, anything in our lives that needs to change, we would be ready and willing 
to make that change. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I wonder how many of us have found ourselves in a similar situation as David. When you've been put in charge, right? Nothing changes a relationship quite like being put in charge of other people. As soon as people, someone puts you in charge of someone else, that person, no matter how much they might have liked you and supported you before, is very likely to resist you now and resent you. And that has nothing to do, most of the time, with you. Now, uh, you know, I really try not to make movie references in the pulpit, um, at least not frequently. It's not really technically a movie reference, okay? But if you've ever watched the Andy Griffith Show, then you know that Barney Fife is the perfect deputy. But when you put him in charge, he all of a sudden becomes this tyrant. Like rules, rules, rules. But nobody wants to be under him at all. And we're a lot like that uh, sometimes. So it could be you and it might not be you. Because people also have a natural suspicion and resentment towards authority. And these kinds of transitions where you're put in charge and now there's always going to be someone who is not okay with you being in charge. And it can be messy and frustrating, especially if they are determined to resist you at every possible point. Abner has no good reason for rejecting David as king. No good reason. No excuse whatsoever. In fact, Abner doesn't offer an excuse. He does not explain his resistance to David as king. And the Bible doesn't give us any excuse for it either. Now, we tend to sympathize with Abner, especially when we get to the part of the story. If you're familiar with the story, then you know that Asahel uh, is, um, or Asahel, is pursuing after Abner, chasing him, and, and Asahel is definitely a faster runner than Abner, right? And so he's chasing after him, and the Bible tells us that Abner twice, twice tries to turn Asahel back, and Asahel won't turn back. And so, finally, as they're running, Abner just takes his spear and jabs it backwards and runs it all the way through a sail in his glory. Um, and it comes out his back there and a sail dies right there. And, you know, to be honest, I think we read this passage and we, kind, we feel a kind of sympathy for Abner here. He's somewhat of a sympathetic figure. Especially, we sympathize when we remember that Abner is Saul's uncle and he's been a loyal, loyal servant of Saul for all the years that Saul was king, 40-some years that he has served under Saul. And we all know our own tendencies, do we not? When, when we followed a particular person for many years, it's hard for us to give that loyalty over to someone else. You know, they say, woe unto that man who becomes the pastor after a 40-year pastor, right? He's going to be there. Uh, pastor uh, Singletary used to tell me all the time, yeah, he's just there to, 
to prepare the way for the next guy after him. He's going to be there for about three years, maybe four, and then he's going to be gone. And uh, that's the way it usually works in the world because people have a hard time taking that loyalty that they gave to someone for so long. And then on top of that, it was his nephew. And you know, I mean, not everybody is this way, but certainly we have an affinity for our family members. And certainly there is that, you know, I've talked about my aunts before. I've got my doting aunts who love me from across the world and make it known all the time, very publicly, uh, that they are very proud of me and so on. It's mainly because there's a sentimental attach attach attachment. Yeah, thank you. You knew what I was saying there. Uh, but uh, anyway, so we can, I think we can sympathize. We can recognize, understand how Abner, he, he isn't quite ready to yield to the upstart David, who, by the way, was his nephew's rival for many years. Abner's rebellion, though, is the main point of this passage, along with the next chapter. We know that this is rebellion on Abner's part because the focus, first of all, is on Abner, not David. David gets a passing mention here in the chapter. And uh, in fact, the only mention really of David is just in reference to the fact that the men of the opposing army and the men of Judah are now considered David's men. Otherwise, David is not directly, immediately involved in this at all. <clears throat> and the passage elaborates on the conflict between Abner and Joab and the chaos that resulted from that conflict. It's been pointed out, and you look at it and you'll see what I'm saying, that if we took out most of this chapter and only had verses 12 and 13 and 17, we would get the gist of what happened here. So the fact that, and I pointed this out to you also before in these Old Testament stories, when you're given a lot of detail, the reason you're given a lot of detail is because God has a point for us in the detail. It seems to me that God wants us to learn something from Abner's rebellion here. And that'll be the point of the message. We learn just how much trouble we cause by our rebellion. And yet we also see David's example of patience under fire. I want to break this message into three parts. I want to consider Abner's rebellion and the chaos that came out of that rebellion. And then I want to look at David's response. Even though that response is not directly stated in the Bible, I still want you to see it because I think it's important. We begin with Abner's rebellion, and it certainly is not a stretch to call this rebellion at all. First of all, David was anointed king by the kingmaker, right? Samuel anointed him king. Everyone knew this. Saul knew it. Jonathan knew it. It's, it, it would be impossible to think that Abner did not also know this. The men of Judah recognize this when they anointed at the beginning of this chapter verse 4 chapter 2 verse 4 when they anointed David king of Judah 
they were recognizing what God had already ordained here. And we know that Abner knew this as well. We know it absolutely because in chapter 3 and verse 9, Abner said to Ishbosheth, so do God to Abner and more also, except as the Lord has sworn to David, even so I do to him, to translate the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan even to Beersheba. Now this is not a recent development. This is not a new discovery on Abner's part. He knew it all along. He held it in his pocket for a convenient time, for a moment when, and I don't think Abner ever expected Ishbosheth to rise up against him, but in chapter 3, Ishbosheth absolutely did. Rebuked Abner, and in response, Abner did but what rebellious people do, right? Because this, I, I've seen this thousands of times, it seems like, probably not literally, but Lots and lots of times when a person is in rebellion and you point it out to them, they respond by lashing out and pointing out your fault and your failure. And that's what Abner did. In fact, Abner did one up on that. He had the trump card in his pocket and he chose that moment to play it. So Abner knows that David is the anointed king. He knows that. He is willfully rejecting David as king by raising up Ishbosheth and putting him in place. Now, God only knows Abner's reasons for rebelling this way. The Bible never discloses that reason or tells us what exactly Abner is thinking here. But clearly, the idea to set up Ishbosheth as king didn't come from Ishbosheth. You couldn't find uh, a weaker, more sniveling, and unambitious man in all of Israel. He became Abner's tool. Maybe, maybe Abner was jealous for the house of Saul. Maybe he realized that he probably wouldn't play much of a role in the new kingdom, and so what would he be? Maybe he thought his life would be in danger. I mean, David had made vows to Jonathan to preserve his family. It's well known among the Oriental kings that when a king is deposed, the family is in grave danger. And so maybe Abner knew that David had made a pledge to Jonathan's sons, but Abner is not one of those. And so he may have thought that his life was in danger because of this. Maybe he really had a heart commitment to a hereditary monarchy and thought that, that the, the king should stay in the family. Who knows? What we see very clearly in the passage, with certainty, is Abner's ambition shining through. He is determined to have his way to establish the throne of Ishbosheth. And Abner's ambition and pride is the spark that started this great fire in Israel that cost many lives. As Matthew Henry said, see how much 
mischief, the pride and ambition of one man may be the occasion. What does the Bible say? Go not forth hastily to strive, lest thou know not what to do in the end thereof when thy neighbor put thee to shame. So let's then look at Israel's chaos as a result of Abner's rebellion. One thing is absolutely certain from the passage. Abner is the aggressor in this. They're not going to war against each other. David is not going to secure the kingdom through bloodshed. He's not going to war to conquer the people of Israel. <clears throat> David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead in verse 5 of chapter 2 with a very thinly veiled appeal to them. He appealed to them to join him in his kingdom. He appealed on moral grounds. He appealed on uh, in a respectful way. Demonstrated his respect for the men of Jabesh Gilead and their loyalty to Saul. And of course, there's um, politics involved, there's strategy involved in this. There's a recognition of all the cities in Israel, the most loyal and faithful to Saul were the men of Jabesh Gilead, who Saul had delivered from a disgraceful slavery. They were forever grateful, and there's no more powerful motivation to loyalty than gratitude. And so David appealed to them first. He sought to honor them for the great risk they took in, in taking Saul's body down from the walls of Bethshan along with his sons and giving them a proper treatment, a proper disposal of the bodies. And then David admires and appreciates that and wishes to express his gratitude, to demonstrate it to them. <clears throat> By the way, Jabesh Gilead is on this other side of Jordan, uh, the Jordan River, the same area as Maanam. So where Ishbosheth has set up his kingdom is in the area, in the region of Gilead. So uh, David is appealing there, knowing that this is where Abner is attempting to set up an anti-kingdom. No doubt Abner felt the threat then of David's overture. He realizes that David is trying to pick his pocket here with this, and he recognizes that. How can we explain all this? How can we explain what Abner is doing here? How about I say it this way? Abner is acting like a man. Right here. This is what men do. This is what men do when they get sideways with things, when they get sideways with God. This is what men do when they don't like the situation and aren't willing to trust the Lord with it. This is what men do when they get their feathers ruffled. This is how men respond. They take matters into their own hands. They determine, never mind, never mind what God said. Never mind what God has done. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to deal with this the way I am going to deal with this. That's what they do. And that's what Abner did. It is part of our fallen human nature that turns us aggressor when we know that we're in the wrong and that someone else is in the right 
we tend to become aggressive towards them. Maybe you have done this yourself. God forbid that any of us have ever, you know, in a sibling rivalry, when a sibling pointed out to us that we were what we were doing was wrong, and we retaliate against them, we hit back at them for pointing it out. What motivates that? It's not a sense of justice. It's not a sense of righteousness. It is a an anger because you made me look bad. This is what we do. This is, can I say it this way? This is how we roll. Isn't it? As people, quite often, people, in, in my experience, people are rarely willing to rebel in silence. They always seek converts. They always have to bring others along with them in their rebellion. And they always have to make the authority look bad that they've rebelled against. And that's exactly what Abner is doing right here. Well, what happens next tells us that Abner feels a little more pressure to squash David. Because Abner gathers his troops and crosses the Jordan, traveling all the way to Gibeon. Now, uh, in the uh, Nikot commentary, David Sumura suggests that David made a similar proposal to the men of Gibeon as he had made to the men of Jabesh Gilead, and that that's the reason why, uh, why uh, Abner went to Gibeon. It's hard to say that for sure. Uh, we can't know it for sure, but I will point this out to you. David's first overture was to the men of Jabesh Gilead, the most loyal to King Saul. Gibeon just happened to be the place that was the enemy of Saul. Now, this is not Gibeah of Saul. This is Gibeon, home of the Gibeonites. Maybe you remember the Gibeonites because the Gibeonites uh, had uh, snookered Joshua into a deal in order to save their skin. And they, they deceived Joshua into making a treaty with them. Joshua made the treaty, and then God pronounced a curse on anyone who would violate that treaty. The Gibeonites were off limits. The Gibeonites were to be protected. Well, we find out later in 2 Samuel that Saul did not honor that. I know that's a shocker, right? that Saul would not honor the word of God. It's funny that he attacked all the people he shouldn't have attacked, but did not attack the people he should have attacked, like the Philistines, the Amalekites, for example. But why was he harassing the Gibeonites? But he killed some of the Gibeonites, and so there was bad blood between the Gibeonites and King Saul. And in fact, the way David, I don't know that he didn't know about it, but the way God brought it to his attention that this was still a great offense to him was that God brought a famine into the land. And when David inquired of the Lord, we're going to come to this later in 2 Samuel, but you know, that could be three years from now. Who knows? But um, when, when David inquired of the Lord, the Lord showed him that it was because Saul had killed the Gibeonites. And so when David went to the Gibeonites to ask how to make restitution, they said, we don't want any of Saul's money. 
They said, give us seven of Saul's sons and we'll hang them. That's personal. So there's personal conflict between the house of Saul and Gibeon. It's very possible that <clears throat> the reason Abner went to Gibeon to attack there is because David was in the process of negotiating the Gibeonites, who, by the way, that was in the, the region of Benjamin. That was the, Saul's tribe. So again, David is trying to pick his pocket. David is coming in his back door. David is strategic, political in how he does this. He understands politics. It's clear from the passage, though, that Abner is the aggressor in here. He is the one taking these steps. He has traveled all this distance to attack at Gibeon. I can't say for sure, but it seems that about three quarters of the distance, if you go between Hebron and Manam, about three fourths of the distance is to is covered by Abner. He has come about three fourths of the way, and David wisely sends Joab as a means of defense against the, the encroachment of Abner. Uh, as Abner's preparing, perhaps they don't know, but perhaps preparing to cross the line into the tribal land of Judah. And in fact, just about all the trouble in this passage can be traced directly to Abner. It is Abner who, when they meet at Gibeon, suggests a contest between his men and David's men at the pool of Gibeon. <clears throat> by the way, that, that pool was discovered in the 1950s by an archaeologist. Time magazine uh, made it a cover story on their, uh, on their magazine back in the 1950s. How things have changed. Abner's little game, though, is a little contest. You get 12 of your best fighters, and I'll get 12 of my best fighters, and let's let them fight it out here at the pool. And Abner's little game goes badly. Each side sent 12 soldiers to meet at the pool for a game of daggers. The soldiers pair up, and on the whistle, they grab their opponents by the head, they stab each other in the side, and they all, 24 of them, fall dead at the moment. In fact, they name the field after this tragic, and yet there's an element of comedy in this thing. You see it and, and think how ridiculous it is, but they name the field after this comic battle. The, the, <clears throat> the, the name, uh, which I'm not going to try to pronounce again and slaughter for you, but the name mean, means, according to the margin in the King James, the name means the field of strong men. Matthew Henry says it means the field of rocky men. He says that uh, because the, the name itself uh, is a derivative of the Hebrew word for flint. And uh, so uh, Sumura in, the, in Nikot uh, says that the name should be Flint's Field. That's basically what they're calling it, Flint's Field. But that doesn't necessarily make sense because if you're referring to the daggers, because the daggers would have been made of metal and not of stone. Dale Davis calls it Knife Commons. Uh, they, they called it Knife Commons there. However that might be, whatever the, the point is, that the place is named for this tragedy. 
Whole 20, and, and imagine watching as this goes. That this is not what you were expecting to happen. Hand-to-hand -hand combat, all 12 of them to grab the opponent by the head and drive their dagger into their opponent. And all 12 on each side to die in that moment. But all of this happened because of Abner's suggestion. For Abner, this is just a game. He's calloused towards human life, towards bloodshed. David cares very much. He will not conquer or subdue the kingdom by bloodshed. He cares for the lives of the people. But Abner is all about himself, all about his legacy, all about maintaining his status in Israel. And so David, Abner, for Abner, the lives of these soldiers is as nothing for him. <clears throat> now, the contest leads to an actual battle. Verse 17 refers to a sore battle. And after the failure of this poolside contest, Abner loses the battle that day as well, loses it soundly. And that results in Abner running for his life from the battlefield and a Sahal, the family track star, in hot pursuit. Now you should know that Zeruiah, uh, the mother of Joab and Abishai and Asael, Zeruiah was David's sister, according to 1 Chronicles 2 and verse 16. It's unusual for sons to be named by their mother, which leads us to believe that, um, that Joab's father had died at a young age, died tragically. And of course, we know that his father's already buried because uh, at the end of the chapter, you'll see uh, that they buried Asahel uh, at the tomb of his father. Uh, you can see that at the end of the chapter in verse 32. <clears throat> so these sons of Zeruiah are David's cousins. And they're all three very similar in character. You can see the similarity. They're very loyal to David throughout their lives, extremely loyal to David, Joab to a fault. Two of these three brothers are named among David's mighty men. Interestingly, the one that's left off the list is Joab. Asael and Abishai are both named among David's mighty men. Asael was one of the 30. And Abishai was the most honorable of the second rank of three. So in the, the listing of David's mighty men, which number 37, there are three in the first rank, three in the second rank, and 30 in the third rank. As Nikon explains, all three of these men favor direct, swift action, and we see that in their lives as characteristic of these men, and certainly that's the case with the description of a sale as he chases uh, Abner. The Bible tells us that he did not turn from the right hand, turn to the right hand, or to the left. Only a sail isn't armed for battle. It's a tragic thing. We aren't quite sure what a sail thought he would do when he caught Abner. Abner is a man of war. And Abner has killed many men. 
you would not think that it would be a wise thing that you're faster than him, so you can therefore what? Catch him and arrest him? You're going to do a citizen's arrest on him? Haul him off? Are you going to kill him? What are you going to do with him? I don't think Asaliah thought about that. Does he underestimate Abner as a fighting man? Whatever the problem in Asaliah's thinking, it clearly was a deadly mistake that he made. Quote uh, someone else, Asaliah had the speed, but Abner had the spear. Asaliah ran a good race, but Abner fought a good fight. And in the end, well, in the end, there was protruding Abner's spear out of Asael's back. By the way, that kind of graphic description was common to that era. When you read uh, other books, the Iliad and the Odyssey, which are set in much, the, the, the era, the time period of the Iliad and Odyssey are within a few hundred years of this. And the descriptions, the vivid descriptions uh, of gore and bloodshed are a common feature of these things. And the Bible uh, gives us that same kind of feel here. Now, Abner knew that it wasn't going to go well for him. The contest didn't resolve anything. It was a failure. The battle didn't go Abner's way, way. That was a failure. And it seems like Abner really didn't want to kill Asael either. He begged him twice to turn aside from following him. We can only imagine Abner gasping for air as he ran and called back to Asael in between breaths. Turn back. Turn back. Get yourself. There are lots of dead bodies. Get yourself a set of armor and then come fight me. And of course, hoping that he could make his escape. But Asael didn't want to lose his prey. He had just about caught up to him. And I mean, when you're a, a sail, you're thinking, what a prize. I get to catch after. I get to deliver him to David. That's all a sail is thinking, I think. He's not thinking about what he's going to do, how he's going to deal with Abner when he catches him. Who knows? Maybe a sail underestimated Abner. Maybe he overestimated himself. But either way, the second time, Abner begged him to turn back either because he genuinely respected and loved Joab, and it does seem that there was a friendship between them, or perhaps because he was afraid of him and knew that Joab would seek vengeance if he killed him. Another thing that you should understand from that time period, and what is unique in the Old Testament, is that uh, the the... Blood of vengeance, blood of vengeance, blood avengers was an expected thing at that time. If you killed my brother, I was expected to kill you. What's unique in the Old Testament is that God set up cities of refuge where men could flee when there was an accidental death because otherwise that chain of blood vengeance would never be broken. If you killed my brother, I was expected to kill you. And then your near kinsman was expected to kill me. And it was a thing of honor, and it never ended. So Abner doesn't want to have part in that. Once he starts that ball rolling, there is no end to it. But a sail didn't turn back. 
And so Abner used, and I mean, this is a shocker when you're when your weapons of war are spears and swords that you would sharpen both ends of the spear because you want the entire spear to be a weapon and Abner's uh, spear is sharpened on the bottom side and so he thrusts it in the back and thrusts it all the way through a sail and it must have been quite the painful way for a sail to die. The Bible tells us that as many as came to the place where a sail fell down and died, stood still. It was such a horrifying, such a shocking thing. Now think about this. Israel's just lost their king. His body was mutilated along with his sons. David has been crowned king, but now Abner has raised up Ishbosheth. And is trying to keep the kingdom in the family. Israel is in turmoil. And now there's this tragedy at the pool of Gibeon. There are all these dead bodies of soldiers laying all around. These are fellow countrymen. Here. And a sail dies. This, and, and a sail is an honorable, heroic champion in Israel. All this chaos, all this tragedy, because of one man's ambition and pride and rebellion. And then the Bible tells us in verse 24 to 26 that Joab and Abishai pursued after Abner, obviously a different way. And as the sun began to set, Abner was able to rally his troops and take a defensible position on a hilltop. And then we see Abner call down to Joab and make a very pious sounding speech like I never really wanted to have this fight with you and can't we just all get along he says shall the sword devour forever knowest thou not that it will be bitterness in the latter end how long shall it be then ere thou bid the people return from following their brethren now Joab's answer to this might mean a couple of things the way it reads to me, it sounds like Joab said that if Abner hadn't spoken, they would have pursued them all night and then quit in the morning. Others have suggested that Joab laid responsibility for this whole tragedy at Abner's feet. If you hadn't spoken, none of this would have happened. Either way, Abner is blowing smoke at Joab. He doesn't mean this. We know that because in chapter 3, the hostilities continue. The warfare, the bloodshed, and all-out civil war breaks out among the people of Israel. <clears throat> of course, Joab and Abishai carried the body of their brother back to Bethlehem, their hometown, and buried it as they traveled back, returned to Hebron, the seat of David's power. This is the point I want to make to you. That this is the kind of thing that results when men determine not to follow what they know God has said. When men rebel against the word of God, the result is chaos, destruction, bloodshed. Now, 
we don't see it that way played out that way necessarily in a church but we have seen lives destroyed because someone has resolved that I will not submit to the word of God in this area I will not do what God says their children are destroyed their own families are destroyed other families are destroyed it is a horrible terrible very bad no good thing when men determine to go against what God says it doesn't matter by the way that you know the truth that you know the promise of God's word Abner is evidence proof positive that you can know the truth and still not do it. You can know what is right. And in fact, it is in knowing what is right and doing the opposite that the greatest destruction occurs. Abner absolutely knew what God had promised David. He absolutely knew it. He wasn't willing to accept it. That's it. He wasn't willing to accept it. Let me say it to you this way. When we know the gospel of Jesus Christ and we reject it, the result will be death eternally in the lake of fire and brimstone in hell itself. It will not go well for you, but it's not just you that you're destroying. Entire families burn in hell because somewhere along the line, someone in that family decided, I will not submit to God's word in Jesus Christ. I will not. I've heard people say that if what you're showing me from the Bible is true, then my whole family, my grandparents, my parents, my sisters and brothers are all burning in hell. I'm not willing to believe that. And so they follow their unsaved loved ones to hell because they refuse to believe that they're in hell. They refuse to believe the Bible. There is nothing, nothing more destructive to you than rebelling, open rebellion, rebellion willful rebellion against the authority of God's word. <clears throat> Abner knew what God had promised David <clears throat> but just wasn't willing to follow it to accept it whatever his reasons might have been the Bible doesn't tell us we can speculate about them but really it doesn't matter what his reasons were the reality is he rejected what God said he rejected the fact that God ordained David to be the next king God had called him to be that king. Everyone knew that. And because of his rejection, the Bible tells us, if you read down in the passage, 19 of David's men plus his hail died. 12 of those 19, by the way, were at the poolside and his hail. So there are seven others that died unaccounted for. 360 of Abner's men died in that battle. 360 lives wasted, ruined. Because one man resolved, I will not submit 
God's will in this. Now, I'm glad that the Bible doesn't tell us what Abner's reason was for setting up the kingdom. Because you know what? This is how we are. If the Bible told us why Abner set up Ishbosheth as king, we would spend time analyzing it, and we would come to conclusions, sometimes odd, strange ones, and we would be distracted by that. Kind of like the way, you know, parents sometimes listen to their children, make excuses for their disobedience, uh, also known as rebellion, by the way, and consider whether or not little Freddie might actually have a point. Maybe I didn't speak as clearly as I should have. Maybe it wasn't fair that I told him to do that. Maybe, you know, he just didn't want to do it, and maybe that's legitimate. Well, it's foolish, parents, foolish for you to listen to your children make excuses for their disobedience. Don't do that. Don't give them a pass. Don't treat it like that might be reasonable. That might be legit for them to disobey God by disobeying me. I've rarely ever seen a rebel who didn't have a cause. They always have a cause. There's always some grievance that they're nursing. There's always some bitterness in their heart. There's always something that they refuse to submit to. And they think that they are the righteous one and you are the ungodly one. If you want to find, you know, the most righteous people in the world, you know, are all housed at the state prison. But outside of that, the more rebellious they are, the more self-righteous they are. They believe that they are the ones who are right and everyone around them is wrong and is the problem. Just about every rebellion is backed by solid reasoning. But it's still rebellion. And rebellion is sin against God. Always. Rebellion is as iniquity and idolatry, the Bible says. To rebel is to raise up a false god and bow before that god and make that god your god. That's rebellion. And the fact that you defend it from Scripture doesn't make it any better. You can sprinkle an entire bag of powdered sugar on a dunghill, but you won't improve the smell and you definitely won't improve the taste of it. Even so, it is possible to know the truth, but not embrace the truth. To quote the truth, but not submit to the truth. To hold the truth, and yet assault the truth. Even so, the Bible reminds us, therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Only this is the kind of sin that leaves a lot of destruction in its wake. Wake. Many lives will be destroyed when we refuse to yield to the word of God and put ourselves under its authority. Abner was never going to come out on top in this thing, never. He was not going to prevail against God. God had anointed David king. God intended that David, the house of David, would be the house from which the Messiah came forth. Abner was not going to win this battle. 
It is silly for him even to think that. You cannot resist God. But I will point out to you that there are cases sometimes when the rebel does win. Or at least temporarily wins. But for Abner, he didn't win. Abner lost and lost and lost. You know, uh, one of our first introductions, earliest introductions to Abner was when he was sleeping next to Saul and David crept into the camp and took Saul's spear and his water jug and walked out of the camp with it and rebuked Abner for sleeping, right? You can't help but think that Abner, he got the losing gene. He's a failure here. <clears throat> it went from bad to worse. And we'll see that more in chapter 3. On this day, Abner lost 360 to David's 20. Rebellion only never pays. It never pays. It only takes. It only robs you. But then I told you that I want to talk about David's response to all of this. David is only mentioned in passing here. So the Bible doesn't ex exactly tell us how he responded. It doesn't directly tell us. But I think that we can glean a couple of things here, and I think this is important. First of all, we know for sure David did not go to war in order to force Israel to come under him as king. He did not, in other words, impose his will on Israel. He was patient. And with the men of Jabesh Gilead, we see an example, not just of that patience, but of sweet reasonableness as well. He didn't demand his way. He didn't act petulant or peevish when he didn't get his way. I can't help but point out the way David illustrates the kind of grace shown to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. Because Jesus is king. He isn't waiting for our special coronation day before he becomes king. He is king by right. God crowned him. And yet Jesus doesn't impose his will on us or respond angrily to our rebellion against him. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. I drew them with cords of a man with bands of love. And I was to them as they that take off the oak on their jaws. And I laid meat unto them. Our Lord Jesus Christ does not carry us away into bondage and slavery. He delivers us from bondage and slavery. Isaiah 65, I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people which walketh in a way that was not good after their own thoughts, a people that provoketh me to anger continually to my face, that sacrificeth in gardens and burneth incense upon altars of brick. Romans 10 and verse 21. But to Israel he saith all day long, I am stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. And Jesus stood outside the city gates of Jerusalem. And he cried out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets 
and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chicken under her chickens under her wings? And ye would not. This is the kind of patience and persistence and pleading and sweet reasonableness we see on the part of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we know the number of times he's called us to repentance and the number of times that we have continued in our sin, continued to reject him. And especially if you came to Christ as an adult, then you know very well the number of times you came under conviction for your sin and the number of times you still turned away from the Lord Jesus Christ. What an example it is to us, the long-suffering and grace of Christ who continually draws us. The goodness of God brings us to repentance. All of us will have those moments when we should be following our authority, but instead we are pushing back against it. So let me say this. We also ought to follow the example of Christ and the example of David in the kind of sweet reasonableness we show to those who are under our own authority. The antagonism that you face from those who should be following your lead is not helped when you respond with outrage, when you respond harshly, bitterly yourself. I would like to apply this to you who have authority in the workplace. You can make all the troops cower before you as you glower and growl and glare, but you won't gain any gratitude or loyalty from that. Don't let self-interest dictate your response. Don't say, I'm going to be the boss here. Avoid the temptation to shortcut your way to leadership. But especially, I need to apply this to husbands and wives. There isn't a young husband in the world who hasn't at one time or another looked at his wife and said something like this, I'm the husband, I'm the boss. Or something along those lines. And then... There has to be a sweet reasonableness on our part. You can't just flex. You can't just bring her to bear here. Yes, God made you the head. He says you're the head. And you are to exercise that headship out of love for your wife and bring her along <coughs> with you. You can show her who's boss, but you'll pay a high price if you keep doing that. Wives, don't be an abner to your husband. You know what God says. Don't decide that my way is better than God's way. Hopefully you can see the bloodbath that results from that kind of rebellion and resistance of God's authority. Husbands, when your wife resists, when she pushes back, when she rebels, be firm, but patient, reasonable, 
long-suffering as you encourage her to hear you and to follow. But especially, especially, I want to point you all back to the example of our Lord Jesus Christ and ask you to consider his claim over you. Because of his death on the cross, God highly exalted Christ and gave him a name that's above every name. And he did this with the intention that we would bow the knee before Christ and worship him. The only right response for us to make to the authority of Jesus Christ is to bow the knee and keep bowing. And every challenge in your life, every challenge to his authority, the result of that challenge should be to bow the knee once again. Once again. Because throughout your life, God will raise to the surface certain areas of your life that are contrary to the will of God as revealed in the Word of God. And every time one of those areas of rebellion surfaces, rises to the surface, your responsibility is to identify it as rebellion and bow the knee in that area as well. Some affection that's contrary to the affections that we're commanded to have in the Word of God. Some affection will rise up that's contrary to God. And when you see it, you must surrender it to the Lord. Some area of your will, some priority, some desire that is contrary to what God wants from you. And when you see it, you must yield it to the Lord. Bow the knee. If we will not, we are fools. We're channeling our inner Abner. Don't do that. Don't do that. You don't want to carry around Abner in your back pocket and get him out once in a while. Jiminy Cricket, maybe. All right? Abner, no. He's out. Don't have Abner in there. Don't give place to the Abner. If you don't like what you're seeing, that's no reason to snatch out your eyeballs, right? If you don't like looking at certain things, you don't snatch out your eyeballs. If you don't like what you're hearing, you don't take a, a knife and, and scrape out your inner ear. You don't do that, right? <clears throat> but when we rebel against the Lord, we are cutting ourselves off from Him. Cutting ourselves off from Him. But notice the way the Lord deals with us. His patience and pleading, his refusal to deal with us after our sin. My friend, if you continue to reject him after he's been so patient with you and so gracious towards you, then you will certainly face the wrath of an offended God who is very holy. And that will be your destruction. And so you must surrender. Surrender. To the Lord surrender to him yield to him and make that the practice in your life